USA Today ran a fascinating article a couple of years ago. The title of the article is, Could Insecurity Be the Secret of CEO's Success? The article goes through to examine not only business leaders, but also athletes, professional athletes, to ask the question, what role does insecurity play in the success of those who are at least outwardly successful by the world's standards? There's an interesting quote in that article from a guy named Mark Lancaster, who is a CEO of a company of about 1,500 people. He was very honest to say, we're all insecure. We feel inferior to our audience and surroundings and drive very hard to compensate and to prove we are better than the rest. The article goes on to say that insecurity seems to be a trend in most professional athletes and in most business leaders. And the only thing I would add to that, it also is a trend in most pastors and most other people who are uh, here this morning. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's not my problem. <laughs> my problem is not insecurity. My problem is, is when I look at the people around me, I feel too good about myself. I don't feel inferior to people around me. I feel better than people around me. Well, actually, that's the same problem. Insecurity and arrogance are two sides of the same coin. It's the same issue. Terry Cooper, who wrote a book called Sin, Self, and Pride. I can't remember. Can I have the quote? Sorry. Sin, Pride, and Self-Acceptance. Thank you. Says this in the book. One may be dominant but the other does not lie far behind. Thus, there is unexpected low self-esteem in pride and unexpected pride in low self-esteem. Arrogance and insecurity go hand in hand. They're the same thing. They result from a preoccupation with ourselves. That when we look to ourselves, we end up insecure and arrogant, often at the same time, sometimes going back and forth between the two. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to look at King Saul, who's one of the most significant examples in the Bible of how insecurity and arrogance plays itself out in the life, and in his case, of a leader, but in life of a follower of God. And what we want to do this morning is identify five characteristics from King Saul's life that come from the insecurity and the arrogance that's there. And as we're listening this morning, and we may be beating up King Saul pretty heavily, our job is to listen and to say, you know what, we may not recognize all five of those in our lives, but I'm guessing if you're like me, there's going to be at least one that you resonate with. And know that if you resonate with that characteristic, that according to God's word, it's really insecurity and arrogance that's creating that symptom in our lives. And as I went through this week and wrote the sermon and prayed this through, I was surprised how often I kept showing up in the sermon. I tried to change the language so it didn't make me look so bad, but that didn't work. But I'll just say we all, all suffer from insecurity and arrogance in various degrees. And so as we look through the scriptures, 
The goal is not to beat ourselves up. But the goal is, is to honestly examine ourselves in front of the mirror of God's Word so that we can recognize the things that are in us that ought not be there and by God's grace have victory over those. So if you have your Bible, would you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13? 1 Samuel 13. It's page 199 in the Bibles the church provides. As we've said all year long, we're taking Samuel in narrative chunks, which means that there's too many verses for us to read this morning. We're covering three chapters today, 13, 14, and 15. They're all centered around this same theme, this same idea of the issues that arrogance and insecurity can raise in our lives. My encouragement to you is is read these chapters at home. Read them for your quiet time. Read them in your small group. Read them in your family. Go back through and read these stories. What we're going to do today is just simply pick out key verses that demonstrate what's going on. I'm going to try to tell us the story of the narrative to take us through. In 1 Samuel 13 to 15, there's two major battles going on that the Israelites are fighting. The first one is in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, and it's a battle against the Philistines. The Philistines have come because Saul and his son Jonathan, Saul is the newly appointed king of Israel, they've begun sort of guerrilla warfare on the Philistines and to attack different Philistine outposts in Israel. Well, the Philistines finally get tired of it, and so they summon an army and they gather at a, a town called Michmash. Saul gets an army together and he gathers at a town called Gilgal, which is right by Michmash. The problem is, is that the Israelite army is a lot smaller than the Philistine army. And when reports begin to filter into Gilgal about how big the Philistine army is, how many chariots they have, how many warriors they have, the people in the Israelite camp, it says, are quaking with fear. Now, while they're gathered at Gilgal, they're waiting They're waiting for Samuel the prophet to come so that he can engage with the Lord for them before they go into battle. Well, while they're waiting, men keep deserting because they hear about the size of the enemy army and every day different people, hundreds of people leave. Some go and hide in caves, some try to escape across the Jordan River and Saul's watching this situation unfold and he thinks every day my army's getting smaller and smaller. Where is Samuel? When's he going to get here? And actually, there was an appointed time. It was seven days after they first gathered that Samuel was supposed to show up. And in the morning of the seventh day, he still hadn't come. Saul looks at the situation and says, look, if I don't do something, we're going to have no army left at all. So instead of waiting for Samuel, he offers the sacrifices to God himself. He says, look, we need the Lord's blessing. Let's just get this sacrifice done. Let's get on with it. So he gets together and he has the offering of the the burnt offering and he offers that to the Lord and just as he's finishing offering that sacrifice Samuel shows up and we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 13 verse number 11 what have you done asked Samuel Saul replied when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal And I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Here's Samuel's reply. You acted foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. 
But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, wait a minute. What exactly did Saul do that was so wrong here? I mean, you read this and you think, well, really? Is that a terrible crime? He wants the Lord's favor. Samuel hadn't shown up. He offered the offering himself. Okay, maybe it wasn't the best thing to do, but really? Rejected his king for that? What's the crime here? Well, as so much in First and Second Samuel, you have to look beneath the surface. The crime's not in the outward actions. The crime's in the heart. That's why Samuel says to him, you didn't obey the command the Lord gave you. The command he's referring to is the command from 1 Samuel 12. When Saul is commissioned as king, Samuel says to Saul, you must as king serve the Lord and fear him and him alone. You must fear God alone. See, the problem is, is that Saul is afraid like the rest of the people. His army is leaving. The opposing army is bigger than his. Samuel's not shown up. And so at this moment, instead of looking to God, he looks to himself and he thinks, if I could just offer this sacrifice, men wouldn't leave. If men don't leave, I'll have more men and a more likely chance to win. It sounds good. It's logical. It's just not biblical. You see, in the story of Judges, God had a giant army of Midianites who were attacking the Israelites, and he raises up a man named Gideon who, who gets all of Israel together to go into battle. There's a problem, God says to Gideon. Your army's too big. You see, if you guys go into battle like this, you'll get the credit. And it won't be seen to be the miracle that it is. So God says to Gideon, send home everybody who is afraid. Because like, look, what I need, God says, is not people who are afraid of the enemy. I need people who fear me. And you can't fear two things at the same time. So God says to Gideon, send home everybody who's afraid. When he's left, Gideon ends up with an army of 300 men. Which turns out to be more than enough to rout the Midianites. But Saul has forgotten that. He's not fearing the Lord. He's fearing people. He's fearing the army. We can actually see the failure of his heart in a story that his, happens with his son in this same battle. While they're there at Gilgal, waiting in fear, Jonathan, Saul's son, and his armor bearer, just two people, sneak out of the Israelite camp and go to attack a Philistine outpost by themselves. Just two of them. Look in chapter 14, verse number 6. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. You see that? That's the attitude Saul's supposed to have. Jonathan thinks, well, there's two of us. That's plenty. If God wants to save, all he needs is just one person. And even then, he doesn't even need that. 
Jonathan gets that his heart should be for the Lord. That's what's missing in Saul. Saul's looked not to God for salvation like Jonathan, his son, is doing. Saul's looked to himself. If I can get this sacrifice done, I can keep these men from leaving. They will rally to my cause. We'll have more men. We'll be able to fight and we can win. The problem is, is that when you're preoccupied with yourself and not with God, it always, always, always creates insecurity and arrogance. When we think we're the solution to our problems, the result will always be insecurity and arrogance. And here in this first example, with Saul and Samuel's confrontation, we see the first characteristic or symptom of insecurity and arrogance. It's back in verses 11 and 12 when Samuel comes to confront Saul. And he says to Saul, what have you done? What does Saul say? He's like, I did the only reasonable thing. My men were leaving. The army of the Philistines was too big. You didn't come. What's Saul doing here? He's blaming everybody but himself. He's making excuses for his action. And that is the first telltale sign of insecurity and arrogance. The problem is, is that Saul's had a failure of heart. His son Jonathan says, God can save whether it's one person or two people or 20 people. Saul is afraid, but when he's confronted, he won't own it. He won't admit it. He's trying to protect his self-image. And so he points the finger at everybody else and not at himself. But the truth of the matter, if Saul had trusted in the Lord, it didn't matter how big the Philistine army was. It didn't matter how many people deserted him. It didn't matter how late Samuel would have been. He would have been victorious, whether by many or by few. The failure's in Saul's heart, but he can't own that failure. And so he makes excuses. He points the finger at others and blames them. And that's the first sign of insecurity and arrogance. But what about us? Husbands, if our wives come to us and tell us that we're not paying enough attention to them, is our response to blame our work schedules, to blame all the responsibilities that we have, to make excuses about our own personality? Well, I just not, that's not how I interact with people. Do we blame their personality and say, well, if you were an easier person to hang out with, I'd pay more attention to you. That's the sign of insecurity and arrogance. Or do we own the fact that it's our own selfishness? That really all the rest of that stuff, personalities, work schedules, all that stuff doesn't matter. It's the attitude of the heart. Well, the story continues. Like I said, Jonathan and his armor bearer go off on this guerrilla warfare and because their faith in God is so strong, whether by many or by few, God can work through that act. He can't do anything with Saul because Saul's quaking with fear and just making up excuses. But Jonathan, Jonathan's willing to risk it all for the Lord. So when God sees that, he works through Jonathan and those two guys attacking the Philistine outpost causes the Philistines to think, whoa, where are these Israelites coming from? 
They're sent in, uh, they're thrown into disarray and suddenly at Gilgal where the Israelites are, they look over into Michmash across the valley and they see confusion and they see disarray and they, Saul thinks, hey, my luck has turned. Let's go guys, we can win this battle. But here again, we see the second characteristic of insecurity in how Saul approaches this part of the battle. Look over in chapter 14, verse 24. As the Israelites are getting to ready to pursue the Philistines who are now fleeing, not because of Saul, but because of Jonathan's act of faith. Verse 24, now the men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. Here too we see Saul's insecurities and arrogance coming out. Whose enemies are these? They're the Lord's enemies. But Saul has made it personal. They're my enemies. He has his identity wrapped up in this battle. I must defeat them because then I will be victorious. And if I'm victorious, then I matter. Then I'm somebody. He's made this personal. And not only has he made it personal, he's pushing his troops beyond what could be expected. Nobody should ask an army to fast when they're going to war. Fasting's good, it's important, but not when you're heading to battle, you need your strength. But Saul is so invested, this is so personal to him, that he is pushing them beyond reasonable expectations because he wants to win and he thinks, if I can't motivate my troops, we won't win, and if we won't win, then I'm a failure. And here's the second characteristic of insecurity and arrogance. Taking things personally and pushing others beyond reasonable limits so that we can accomplish our goals. It was not God's goal for Israel for all of the warriors to be fasting. This was Saul's motivational technique to try to spur them on to accomplish what Saul wanted to accomplish. He's taken it personally and he will not allow anyone to rest or eat until he accomplishes his personal goal. That's insecurity and arrogance driving that. But what about us? If our daughter doesn't get a part in the school play, do we take that personally? And sit down with the teacher and determine, I'm gonna give that teacher peace of my mind until I talk him or her into giving my daughter a part that somehow our daughter's failure to get a part in a play negatively reflects on us and we take it personally and becomes a personal vendetta for us? Or do we go home and sit down with our daughter and say, I've been too soft on you. You're gonna go back and do those piano lessons. You're gonna go back and do those acting lessons and you're gonna start now and we're gonna get ready for next year's play because you're gonna be the star. That's our goals. We've taken it personally and we're pushing our children, beyond reasonable expectations, not because this is what God wants for them, but because it validates us that if they get the part, then we get the glory. Is that what we're doing or are we 
seeking to encourage our children and others to do what God wants them to do, to fight the Lord's battles. Well, the story continues. Jonathan, who's out doing the raid that turns the whole battle on its head, is not there when the instructions about not eating are given. Remember, he's out fighting. Saul's back mobilizing the troops. Saul has no idea why the Philistines are now fleeing. He doesn't know his son's over there causing it to happen. Jonathan doesn't hear the instructions. And while he's out, he takes his staff, dips it in some honey and eats it. And he thinks, man, this was great. I feel my energy being restored. He's got a bit of a sugar rush. Well, the other troops who see Jonathan do that, Jonathan's come back to join the Israelites. When they see him, they're like, "Uh, you're not supposed to do that. Your dad said no one is allowed to eat anything. And at that point, Jonathan's like, what? That's the silliest thing I've heard. But it turns out that Saul finds out that somebody has broken his rule. So he casts lots and figures out it was Jonathan. We pick up the story in verse number 43 of chapter 14. Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I merely tasted a little honey with the end of my staff and now I must die. Saul had said anybody who broke his rules was going to die. Listen to Saul's response. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. Now at this point, the army steps in and is like, Saul, have you lost your mind? He's the one who rescued us. He's the one the Lord's been working through and now you want to kill him? Saul does in this case relent and he doesn't kill Jonathan. But here we see the third characteristic of insecurity and arrogance. Insecurity and arrogance manifests itself in outbursts of anger and out-of-proportion harshness. Outbursts of anger and out-of-proportion harshness. Saul thinks that his leadership has been challenged. He must show himself to be a strong leader. There can be no mercy. There can be no grace. No one can challenge my leadership, even my own son. That's insecurity and arrogance talking. But what about us? I picked on husbands earlier, but wives. What about when your husband comes to you with suggestions about how you could do the family schedule differently or suggestions about the way the budget might be done differently? Do you respond with an outburst of anger and say, fine, do it yourself. If you don't like the way I'm doing it, do it yourself. I'm never going to do it again. That's a bit out of proportion for the suggestions that are being made. It's a sign of insecurity or arrogance. What about us when someone challenges our leadership or the rules that we've made? Not God's rules, our rules. The rules that we've made to try to motivate people to do what we want to do. When someone challenges those or disobeys, do we respond with an outburst of anger and out of proportion harshness? You're fired. Or do we respond with mercy? And with grace, with long-suffering, and with patience. The story goes on, chapter 15. Here now we've switched from the battle against the Philistines to the battle against the Amalekites. But Saul's insecurity and arrogance continues to manifest itself. Samuel sends Saul off to war against the Amalekites with the word of the Lord, some very specific instructions about what he's supposed to do. 
He's supposed to go into the Amalekites and wipe them out. Kill the king, kill everybody, kill all the livestock. Everybody's supposed to die. Saul goes in and is victorious. After the victory, we pick up the story, verse number 12 of chapter 15. After the victory, it says, Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. When he gets there, he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and turned and gone down to Gilgal. A monument in his own honor. Not a record of the victory God had won. A monument that says King Saul defeated the Amalekites. Have you seen the recent State Farm commercials with Aaron Rodgers in them? You know the one there's career day and they're in the classroom and little girl raises her hand and says, the person before Anna Rogers, you were, she's a state farm agent. She helps people. What do you do? And Aaron Rogers replies, well, I'm a quarterback. And one of the other kids says, oh no, he says, I'm a, I play football. And one of the other kids says, that's not a job. <laughs> and so Aaron Rogers, who's the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, uh, replies, well, I won the MVP last year. To which another little kid replies, our teacher says that trophies are for those with self-esteem issues. <laughs> it's this great little commercial, but there's truth in it. That's what Saul's doing here is he thinks that somehow his, his identity is validated in this monument. He's building a monument to himself. That's a result of insecurity and arrogance, two sides of the same coin. Building a monument is arrogant. The reason he's doing it is because he's insecure. Those things go together. But what about us? We may not erect a monument in our honor. But do we have walls in our houses that are filled with all of our awards and degrees and trophies? Do we have pictures of ourselves with famous people that they signed? Are we constantly dropping names about important people that we know or who we hung out with? Are we always trying to shift conversation to be about subjects in which we're knowledgeable so that we can dominate the conversation? When people are talking about some great thing that have happened, do we find a need to say, well, you didn't mention my part. I had something to do with that. Don't forget me. Those are signs of insecurity and arrogance. Do we build monuments in our own honor and look for affirmation from others? Or do we build monuments to God's honor and encourage people to affirm what he's done? One more characteristic of insecurity and arrogance that we can see in King Saul's life. When Samuel finally does get to meet him, Saul finishes his monument, comes back to Gilgal. Samuel meets with him there. Samuel says to him, Saul, why didn't you obey the Lord? Saul's like, I obeyed the Lord. I won. It was a great victory. Let's celebrate, Samuel. And Samuel says, no, you didn't. You didn't obey. I gave you very specific instructions. You were supposed to kill everybody and everything. All the livestock. And Samuel says, why do I hear sheep bleeding in my ear? Where did those sheep come from, Saul? You didn't obey. Well, Saul gets evasive. And he begins to make excuses. Finally, he tries this one. He says, well, I disobeyed the Lord because I thought it would be in God's best interest. I was going to sacrifice the sheep to the Lord. That's why I kept them. I wanted to honor God. 
But Samuel's not fooled. He keeps pushing. And finally, Saul admits what the real motivation was. It's in verse number 24 of chapter 15. Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. And here's why. I was afraid of the people. And so I gave in to them. The fifth characteristic of insecurity and arrogance, it manifests itself in people-pleasing. That we find ourselves more afraid of what others think of us, motivated by what others want us to do instead of what God asks us to do. That the men who've been to battle are like, finally we won a victory. They say to Saul, hey, the last time you made us fast, we should eat this stuff. And Saul was more afraid of them and what they thought of him than what God thought of him. We see that actually in another instance a few verses later. Verse 30. After Samuel has confronted Saul, Samuel turns to leave. Saul grabs the hem of his robe. And this is what he says to him, verse 30. I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Come and honor me in front of the elders of Israel. Saul is more worried about how the elders are going to see him than how God sees him. He's more worried about his relationship with the people than he is about his relationship with God. He's worried if Samuel doesn't come back with me, people are going to ask questions. Rumors going to start. Where's Samuel? Does he not approve of what Saul does? Saul doesn't seem to care what God thinks. He's only worried about how his image looks to other people. That's that same people-pleasing tendency. It's wanting our image to be such that the people around us, that we keep up the facade. It's insecurity and arrogance that's driving that in King Saul. But what about in our own lives? Are we more worried about what the other kids at school think of us? And maintaining an image with them rather than worrying about keeping God's rules about morality? In our small group, are we afraid to share the sin that we've committed or the things that we've struggled with because we're hoping we don't want anybody to find out the problems that we have? I really wanted to write a sermon on insecurity and arrogance that didn't apply to me at all. Because then I don't have to own up to all of you that I struggle with it just like you do. Do we want to design our interactions with other Christians, with people in our small group, with whoever, so that we look great? So all our flaws and insecurities and failings and finite is somehow covered up in a facade? Or are we willing to acknowledge we all have failures? We all have weaknesses. We've all fallen short of what God wants us to be. And I told you at the beginning of the sermon that the article, the USA Today article, was actually viewing insecurity somewhat positively. Because it was saying this sort of uh, difficulty in our identity can drive people to great successes, humanly speaking. Business leaders, athletes, pastors, whoever. People can be driven to success by insecurities. The Bible actually affirms that. Turn back to chapter 14. In verses 47 and 48, you get this statement 
about all that Saul accomplished. Look what it says, verse 47. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. Saul, too, had outward success. His insecurity and his arrogance had driven him to great accomplishments. He did a lot for the nation of Israel. But it's interesting that out of these three chapters, his outward accomplishments is relegated to these two verses. Because the point is, is that we think outward success, athletic, ministry, business, family, outward success, the end justifies the means. And if it's our insecurity that drives us, if it's our arrogance that drives us, that's okay. But not in God's economy. This is not the last word on who Saul is. The last word of who Saul is is given by Samuel in chapter 15, verse 23. Well, we'll start in verse 22. Samuel replied to Saul, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. And then here's Saul's epitaph. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord... He has rejected you as king. Say, well, what about all Saul's accomplishments? What about all these armies he defeated? He fought bravely and valiantly. God says, if you look beneath the surface, all that valiant fighting was coming out of low self-esteem. It was coming out of insecurity and out of arrogance. And that God's not concerned with outward appearance. What he's concerned with is what's going on in the heart. And here's the lesson we learned from King Saul. Last week we saw that he was insecure. He's had insecurities his whole life. But last week we saw that how God in his grace gave Saul his spirit so that Saul could have victory over those insecurities. So Saul could be a new person and he was. And in chapters 9 through 11 he did great things for the Lord. And he did it not out of insecurity, not out of arrogance, but out of the power of the spirit. But the warning for all of us today is that just because God has given us his spirit doesn't mean we're not susceptible to those insecurities and arrogances that have been there from the beginning. See what the spirit is? The spirit is the gift of the possibility of being a new person. It's not the guarantee that we will only ever act as new people. It simply opens up that possibility. That's why the New Testament says, walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, fight by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. Because if you and I don't yield ourselves to the Spirit, we will give way to our insecurities and to our arrogance. And we may accomplish great things. We may do tons of stuff at our school, in our neighborhood, with our kids, in our families, at work, in sports, wherever it may be. But it will all be for naught. Because arrogance is the sin of idolatry. 
And that when we look to ourself and are preoccupied with ourself and think that we're the solution to the problems, the result is insecurity and arrogance. But God says, when you walk by my spirit, you don't have to be enslaved to those insecurities anymore. Look, we all have them. Everybody has them. But God has given us his spirit so that we might not give way to them. And the warning of Saul is, walk by the spirit, not by the flesh. Walk in God's power. Live in God's power. And that if you and I hear ourselves in these characteristics... If we hear ourselves blaming others and making excuses instead of owning our own sin, if we hear ourselves taking things personally and making rules and forcing people to accomplish the things we want to accomplish, if we hear in ourselves outbursts of anger and out of proportion harshness, if we see in ourselves building monuments and looking for affirmation, if we recognize in ourselves people pleasing and wanting to, 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 to have a certain image about us, God's saying, you're walking by the flesh. Walk instead by the Spirit. Let God's Spirit fill you. You and I don't have to be captive to our insecurities, to our arrogance. This morning we get to celebrate baptism. And the great thing about baptism is it takes our focus off of us and puts it on God. You see, when we're preoccupied with ourselves, it results in insecurity and arrogance. When we stop and think, I didn't do anything for this salvation. God has given it freely to me. It allows us to focus on God. That in baptism we celebrate that our own best was not good enough, but that God has caused us to be buried with Christ and raised again with Christ to new life. In baptism we celebrate the possibility that as believers in Jesus we don't have to be bound by insecurity and arrogance. Instead we can be new people. And this morning we get to hear the testimonies of some who by faith in Christ are declaring today that they no longer want to be the insecure, arrogant person that they have been in the past, but instead a new person by God's grace through his spirit. Josh.